Now, let me invite you to take your Bible today. As you know, we've been in the book of Samuel before Easter, and then I paused for a few weeks to look at the, some of the aspects of the Easter story. And then last week, I spoke about a marriage made in heaven, and I want to build on that just a little bit, and we will go back to the book of Samuel next week. But today, I want to talk to you about resolutions to build a Christian home. Resolutions to build a Christian home. So would you take your copy of God's Word? We're going to resist in the Old Testament book of Psalms. So we're going to look at Psalm 101 today. It's a very brief psalm. It is only eight verses long, written by the hand of King David. But I'll tell you, it's a very powerful psalm. And what we're going to do <clears throat> is we're going to look at these verses and draw from this some of the resolutions that King David makes when he really gives his inaugural address as king. Uh, he has observed the tragic example of King Saul, and he said, I don't want my kingdom to be that way. I don't want my leadership to be like King Saul. I don't want to die a tragic death like King Saul. I don't want to live a bad example like King Saul. So really, as David begins to take the throne, he gives a series of what we call resolutions, determinations, principles of how he's going to conduct himself, how he's going to govern the kingdom, how he's going to live his life. So as I mentioned, it, it, is a, it is a passage written by David about his kingship, but we certainly can apply it to the family, how we want to live out a Christian environment in our home. All right, so we're going to look at resolutions to build a Christian home. Very simple, nothing deep today, but I do want you to follow along with me as we move through this. Notice verse number one, Psalm 101. I will sing mercy, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. By the way, you may want to circle or underline the times that you see him use those words, I will. Verse 1, I will sing of the mercy and judgment to thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me or stick to me. A froward heart or a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that has a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer." Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me that walk in the perfect way. He shall serve me. He that works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. So may God add his blessings today as we look at resolutions to build a Christian home. As a result of the tragic leadership of King Saul and his untimely death, God chose a new king that would serve the nation of Israel. It was a young teenage boy by the name of David, and God sends the prophet Samuel 
to David's home in Bethlehem, and Samuel talks to David's father, Jesse, and said, you have one of your sons who's going to be the next king. Parade your sons out in front of me, and I will let you know who it is. And one after the other, all of Jesse's boys came out, and Samuel says, no, it's not this one. No, it's not this one. It's not this one. It's not this one. It's not this one. And then finally, he says, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, yes, I do have one other son. He's out tending the sheep. They say, go get him and bring him to me. And when Samuel sees David, he says, this will be the next king of Israel. So at the young age of 17 years old, David is anointed to be the next king of Israel. Although he was a young man and 17 years old, from the time he was anointed until the time he actually became king, many, many years passed. In fact, if you know your Bible's history, you know there were three different times that David was anointed as king. He was anointed as king first time here by Samuel when he was 17. Later on, when he was 23 years old, he was again anointed as king over the area of Judah and Hebron. He was about 23 years old at that time. And then seven years later, at 30 years old, David was once again anointed, and this time he became the king of all of Israel proper. Do you know there is more written about King David than any other character in all of the Old Testament. He wrote some 73 of the 150 Psalms. And the one we're looking at this morning, Psalm 101, was also authored by King David. As I mentioned to you, this is his inaugural address as king. Before he ascends to the throne... He talks about what kind of king he wants to be, what kind of kingdom he wants to establish, and how he wants to lead the nation in a positive way. So listen, if David was 30 years old at this time, then Saul had been king the entirety of David's life and then some because Saul had ruled for 40 years and David knew Saul very well. He was Saul's armor bearer. He served in Saul's court. He actually played music for King Saul to ease his troubled soul. So David really had a front row seat to watch the disintegration of King Saul's life, to watch the downward spiral of King Saul's life and how he started out as a good man who loved God, but the time, uh, by the time of four decades on the throne in Israel had passed, Saul was hardly even recognizable as a man who would even have any respect for the things of God. So David, in watching Saul's life, said, I'm not sure exactly everything I want to be, but I know what I don't want to be. I don't want to follow Saul's example. I don't want my life to end up like his. I don't want my life to disintegrate. I don't want my family's life to disintegrate. So he writes this psalm as a way of making a series of resolutions to say, these are my goals. These are my promises. It doesn't mean that he kept them all. It doesn't mean that he was able to achieve every one of them, but he set his heart hot to be able to make these resolutions a reality in his life. He said, it's necessary for me to, to put some guardrails in my life to keep me on my track. So I want to make some resolutions to remind me of my purpose. I mentioned a couple of Wednesday nights ago that a couple of weeks ago, Tina and I watched the movie uh, Courageous. Now, it's a, it's, it's a few years old, uh, but it is a wonderful Christian family movie. And if you've never seen that, I would encourage you to, uh, to, to check that out. It's a great, great movie. Uh, the long and the short of it is a group of men 
make a resolution among themselves, four or five guys, that they're going to resolve to be the kind of men that God wants them to be. And they list a series of resolutions and they sign it as their promise to keep these promises to God. And listen to those resolutions. This is what it said in the movie. I do solemnly resolve before God to take full responsibility for myself, my wife, and my children. And then they list the resolutions. And and they start with, I will, just like David does in this psalm. I will love them, protect them, serve them, and teach them the word of God as a spiritual leader of my home. I will be faithful to my wife to love her and honor her and be willing to lay down my life for her as Jesus Christ did for me. I will bless my children and teach them to love God with all of their heart, all of their mind, and all of their strength. I will train them to honor authority and live responsibly. I will confront evil, pursue justice, and love mercy. I will pray for others and treat them with kindness, respect, and compassion. I will work diligently to provide for the needs of my family. I will forgive those who have wronged me and reconcile with those I have wronged. I will learn from my mistakes, repent of my sins, and walk with integrity as a man answerable to God. I will seek to honor God, to be faithful to his church, obey his word, and to do his will. I will courageously work with the strength God provides to fulfill this resolution for the rest of my life and for his glory. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that resolution encourages me to do just as those men have done, to make those kinds of promises in my own personal life. In Psalm 101, David makes that original series of resolutions, and we're going to apply it to our lives today to see how it can be resolutions that you and I can make to help build a Christian home. Eight different times in these passages, David says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will. So let's follow through a number of these. Number one, and I'm just going to give them to you in rapid fire succession, okay? Number one, I will rejoice in the Lord. Notice what he says, verse one. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto the O Lord. Will I sing? The emphasis here really is on public worship. And David says, I'm going to make that a priority in my life and a priority in my kingdom. So may I say to you this morning that there actually is no substitute for public worship. Public worship is commanded in the scriptures. Now listen, I am very grateful for the digital technology that we have today that we can send our worship services literally all around the world. On our podcast, uh, John Nixon was telling me uh, the number of downloads that we've had all around the world and that we have people in Hong Kong and Australia and all around the world listening to our worship services on podcast. Now that's a blessing, amen? And I'm grateful for our videos that are out there that are archived and people can go online to our church website and pull those up anytime they want to. And we're so grateful for that. And for our television uh, program, uh, Surrey TV and Spectrum TV, where we can try to take the Word of God to those people who are, who are sick, who are shut in, 
who are maybe living away, maybe in the military or in college and can't be an active part of our church fellowship. And I'm so grateful that we can come into their lives and that we can encourage them by means of digital technology. But I also want you to know that I have a concern in my heart. I have a concern as a pastor for families who may be able to come to church and should be at church on Sunday mornings and should be part of the worship experience who have substituted online worship or television worship for actual in-person worship. Now, I know the COVID restrictions are different and I'm not fussing at anybody, but my heart is burdened because, listen, all that we do all that we do digitally but to try to be an encouragement to other people is a supplement for what we're doing in worship, and it is never a substitute. Can you say amen to that? There is really no substitute for public worship. Now, we might do it as a supplement for a time while we're ill or a time while we're away or a, a time during COVID restrictions, but listen, every Christian... No exceptions unless they're sick or somehow providentially hindered. Every Christian should be uh, a part of a church family and maintain an active role in church life. Because when we are singing together and worshiping together and doing life together and praying together and giving together and celebrating together and hurting together and encouraging together. That's truly what it means to be part of a fellowship. And every Christian person should make worship a top priority in their lives. Do you know the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Online is great. Television ministries are fantastic, but those are supplements and not substitute for the real deal of being in person. So if you're listening by television or online this morning or later in the week, I want to encourage you, be in church somewhere if your health allows, okay? If you remember, when John wrote the book of Revelation, he wrote to a series of seven churches in Asia Minor, and one of those churches was the church at Laodicea. And this is what the Lord Jesus said about the believers who made up the church at Laodicea. As Jesus addressed their indifference, he said this, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I would rather that you be cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now their sin was not intentional sin. It was not something like committing immorality or gambling or drinking or being unfaithful to their wife. It was just that in their heart, they had become indifferent toward the things of God. They had become lukewarm. Not exactly cold, but lukewarm. And listen, lukewarm is a comfortable temperature, isn't it? Lukewarm is a comfortable temperature where we really don't even recognize that it is hot or cold. So for someone who's maybe gotten away from God, they justify that, oh, I can worship on Sunday morning while I'm driving up on the parkway. I can worship on Sunday when I'm in my deer stand. I can worship on Sunday when I'm taking a hike through the woods or when I'm in my boat fishing. And of course, you can have great community with God in all of those places, but there is not a substitute for being in God's house on the Lord's day with God's people, hearing his words, singing his songs, and offering public worship to God. Amen, Pastor Darrell. That's good preaching. There is just no substitute for public worship. 
David said, I will resolve in my heart that I will make uh, public worship, that I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will make that a matter of priority. Number two, look at what he says. I will remember what is most important. Look in verse number two. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. If you carry the King James, you see that word perfect two different times. Some translations render that word blameless. One translation says it this way, and I love this. Listen really carefully. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. That doesn't mean that we'll always be right. Doesn't mean that we'll always make the right decisions. It doesn't mean that you and I are perfect, that our kids are perfect, that our spouse is perfect, and that we're going to have a perfect little family. There are no perfect kids, perfect parents, perfect families. We're all people who are a work in progress, and we try to be more like Christ with each passing day. Even the Apostle Paul struggled with the practice of his own theology. He says, the good that I want to do, I don't do it. And the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I know what's right. That's the target. I know what I need to do. But the struggle between what I should do and what I'm actually doing is a wrestling match within my spirit. And he says, oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Actually, in first century Rome, uh, one of the ways that they handled uh, prisoners is sometimes they would attach a dead body to their back, and they would be chained to this rotting corpse, and they would live out their sentence to this rotting corpse. And that's very vivid imagery, isn't it? As Paul says, who can, who can get this, this dead body off of my back? Who can rid me of this stench of this rotting flesh? He said, oh, wretched man that I am. I know what I ought to do, but I struggle doing it. I know what I don't want to do, and I struggle refraining from doing those things. So with King David, he was much the same way. When he uses that word perfect or blameless, it does not mean that he could be sinless because there's only been one that was sinless, right? That was the Lord Jesus. The Bible says in him was no guile. The Bible says he was perfect in every way. His thoughts, his actions, every aspect of his life was absolutely perfect. That word perfect, as you read it there, or blameless literally means mature. It means mature. God uses it for Job in the Old Testament book of Job. The Bible says he was a perfect man and upright. doesn't mean that Job was sinless. It means that Job was a man who was well-grounded in his walk with God, that he was maturing in his, in his faith. So for you and I, when King David makes that resolution that he will remember what is most important... He is not saying that I'm going to live a life where I'll never have any sin. That's unrealistic in our lives. But he does say what is most important to me is living a life as a maturing, growing Christian. Listen, the most important aspect of our lives, the most important aspect of life is not how successful we become. It is not how much money we make. 
It is not how much influence we can have. It is not our hobbies. It is not our likes or our dislikes. The most important aspect of life is our personal walk with God. In fact, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. In the book of Job 22, it says this, agree with God and be at peace and good will come to you. So your walk with God is priority. It is the most important. And David says, not only am I going to rejoice in the Lord, but I'm going to make this resolution that I'm going to remember what's most important in my life and what's most important more than family, more than work, more than hobbies, more than recreation, more than success, more than fame. The most important thing in life is my personal walk with God. My personal walk with God. And that is one of those resolutions of building a Christian home. Now remember, what, was, what had been David's example of kingship on the throne of Israel? The only king that Israel ever had, and the only king that David ever knew that served on the throne of Israel was King Saul. And he says, I'm not going to follow Saul's pitiful kind of example. Do you know later in Saul's life, Saul left what was most important? He started out with good intention, and he tried to keep God first. But the longer he moved in his, in, his, in his reign as king, the farther he walked away from what was most important. And he died a tragic failure because he forgot that his walk with God was what was most important. Not even holding on to the crown in Israel would compare to what was most important when it was walking with God. So to be perfect doesn't mean that it's sinless, it means to be maturing as a Christian. This is unfortunately one of those areas in which David struggled more than others. You see, David was far from a perfect man. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, do you know if you do a character study of David's life in the scriptures, you find that David had 23 children by eight different wives. And he struggled in many, many ways. And when I read his story, I wonder how in the world can this be a man who on one hand wants to be a man after God's own heart and love God with all that he has, but yet on the other hand struggles so much that he makes some decisions where the Bible says the sword would never leave his house as a consequence of it. So you see, David was a work in progress just like you are and just like, just like I am. But as he, as he ascends to the throne, he said, I will rejoice in God. And I'm going to make a resolution to, make, to keep what is most important in my life, and that's my walk with God. But that's a resolution that he broke, unfortunately. Let me look at, let, let's look at number three. I will reject ungodly influence. Look what he says. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside, and it shall not cleave to me. I will reject ungodly influence in my life. We are all probably more easily influenced than we like to think that we are. We have signals from every direction coming into our lives. Television, radio, internet, other people, print media, we are all influenced by others and by circumstances and activities in this world. And those, and, and, and those, those um, um, influences can have a lasting 
uh, effect on our lives because we're all influenced. When we fill our minds, listen, when we fill our minds with that which honors God, good fruit comes from it, doesn't it? When we fill our mind and our heart and our lives with the things that are pleasing to the Lord, good things comes back out of that. But if we fill our minds with evil, and David says, I'll put no wicked thing before me. If we fill our minds through ungodly influences or evil in our society and in our culture, what is ultimately going to come out of our lives? You know, uh, television is called programming for a reason, right? And if, and if we put, put sewage in our life, that's ultimately what's going to come out of our lives. So this resolution that, that King David makes, he says, I'm going to reject any kind of ungodly influence in my life. I'm not even going to allow the influence of people who walk in disobedience toward God to influence me to do the same. If there is a man who walks out on his marriage, I'm not going to use that as justification to walk out on my marriage. If there is a person who is dishonest in the workplace, I'm not going to use that as justification for my own personal sin. David says, I'm not going to let those who are living apart from God influence me to do the same. There's a verse in the, in the New Testament that says, evil communication corrupts good manners. And we can have good intentions and good desires, but listen, if we, if we hang around people who are a bad influence, the temptation is to become just like them, isn't it? We often use the illustration that uh, if we're hanging around somebody with a bad influence, it's like taking that person by the hand and me trying to pull them up here on the stage when it's a whole lot easier for them to pull me down, right, than it is for me to pull them up. So David says, I'm not going to let people influence my life who are walking away from God and lead me down in that same direction. So he makes that resolution. I'm not going to live with, with ungodly influence. I'm going to reject it. Let me give you number four, all right? Number four. I told you I'm just going to give them to you in rapid fire succession. He says, I will refuse to keep bad company. This kind of plays on verse number three. I will refuse to keep bad company. Notice, a froward heart, the King James says. Some translations use the word perverse. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. The NIV says it this way, men of perverse heart shall be far from me. That is, in the workplace, those who use foul language and off-color jokes, those who do not conduct themselves in a good manner, he said, I'm not going to run around with those and become just like them. Do you know, I've often said, and you've heard this said as well, that, that our heart is like a well, and our tongue is like a bucket. And as the bucket reaches down into the well and it brings up the water, our tongue reaches down into the heart, and it brings up really what's in our heart. So David says, I'm not going to, 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 to really be around the froward or the perverse individual who is going to be influencing me for the negative rather than the positive. Someone who lives with constant anger or cynicism or sarcasm or negativity, whatever it might be. He said, I want to be a person 
who walks with a clean heart. I want to be a person who walks with a mature heart. It has been said, listen, choose your friends carefully because you end up becoming just like them. So if you want to be a low life for the rest of your life, find a bunch of them and just hang around them. And sometimes we can sink to the lowest common denominator. David's resolution is, I will refuse to keep bad company. Now, we want to witness to people. We want to be friends to people and love people who, who may be outside a relationship with God. We're not better than anybody. But there's a difference in witnessing to them and encouraging them and trying to help them and becoming one of them or, or just like them. Again, we're not better than them, but we don't want to be influenced for the negative. When a person begins to affect us negatively more than we are affecting them positively, we draw the line at that company, right? David says, I will refuse to keep bad company. Let me give you number five. I will rebuke slander. Look what he says, verse five. Whoso privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. And him that has a, a high look and a proud or an arrogant heart, him I'm not going to allow. Notice that. I will rebuke slander. Your tongue says a lot about you. Proverbs 18 says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. I read the story sometime back of a minister who was preaching a sermon about the tongue and how it is a deadly poison. And at the end of the service, a lady came forward who was kind of known in the community to be the town gossip. And she came to the pastor and she said, pastor, I want you to know after hearing this sermon, I've been very, very convicted about the use of the tongue. And she said, I want you to know I'm here today just to lay my tongue on the altar. And very quick wit, he said, ma'am, this altar is not long enough for that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, anyway, the Bible says that the tongue is, is full of deadly poison. That it can be like a fire, even the fire of hell. You read the book of James. James says, we can take a horse that weighs hundreds of pounds more than we much, much stronger than we. And we can control that horse by putting a bridle in its mouth, a, a bit in its mouth, and we can make him turn left and right and back up. We can make him stop and go. And we can control that horse with the bit that we put in his mouth. And James says we can do the same thing with a ship, a huge, massive ship that's tossed about on the waves of the ocean. We can control that ship by the means of a, um, relatively in comparison to the ship, small rudder on the back of that ship that turns it. He says, we can do all of that, but nobody can tame the tongue. And it gets us into trouble. Listen to what he says. James says, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It defies the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. Socrates says, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. David says, I'm not going to let that be part of my life. And I'm going to resolve in my life that I will not just refuse to keep bad company, but I will rebuke the slanderer. Number six, I will gain my child's respect by respecting others. Look in verse six. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walks in a perfect or a mature way. He shall serve me. In other words, David's moral and spiritual vision is on godly people. And he says, I want to be like that. 
Isn't that our desire? You see somebody who really lives for the Lord, doesn't it, doesn't it want to create a, a thirst in you to be more like that? It, it certainly does me because I want, to, I want to be that way. So as parents, we always have to remember in front of our children, we want to praise godly people. We want to lift up those who are serving God. Listen, our culture, our culture is, is absent of heroes. Who are our children going to look to for heroes? You don't find many in the sports world these days. You certainly don't find very many in Hollywood these days. Who do our children look to to emulate and say, I want to be like that person. I want that person to influence me. As parents, what we want to do is build up everybody in the minds of our children that is doing something positive for God. Listen, don't ever, listen, don't, I know you're not children. I'm going to talk to you like children. But a word of encouragement and warning, don't ever leave a church service and on your way home talk about what was wrong in church or what was wrong with this person or what was wrong with that person and let your children hear that. If we do what that does, it really kind of sours the mind of our children on church and church life. No churches are perfect. Every church is less than perfect. But what we want to do in front of our children is we want to talk about how good God is, isn't it? And how good God's people are. And what a blessing God's people are when we get together and we work together and we serve together. We want to build up anybody that is doing anything for God that, can, that they can possibly do. And let our children say, listen, this is a good model for you. And we want to respect them. And when your children hear you respecting others, that builds their respect for you as a parent and respect for other people. There's a great article from Focus on the Family that talks about four different types of parents to their children. This, uh, and you've heard this before, it's the same type of leadership uh, that companies look at in the lives of people. And they've just kind of uh, put it in the lives of parents. And uh, research has proven this out. Let me just read you this article. Four different types of parents. It's a little lengthy. I'm going to read it a little fast, but just tune in as best you can. Four different types of parents. Number one, the permissive parent. Permissive parents tend to produce children with low self-esteem and feelings of inferiority. Though the parents express a lot of love, the lack of boundaries of uh, boundaries leaves their children with a high level of insecurity. The kids feel loved, but they are never sure of their limits. Their parents are generally fearful and are afraid of messing up and damaging their children's psyche, so they never set firm boundaries, and the kids feel very loved and yet very unsure of themselves. The second is the neglectful parent. This kind of parent doesn't express much love and also doesn't really care enough to discipline. Their children tend to grow up with little or no lasting relationship with mom or dad. They're estranged because they feel forsaken. The parents' neglect may not necessarily be intentional. They may simply be in the midst of their own traumas and chaos, like an addiction or an abusive situation. They don't purposely desire to neglect their kids, but they don't know how to deal with their own issues adequately and don't have the tools to be healthy parents. These children grow up with unbelievably deep emotional scars, and their only hope is to find Christ, be surrounded by godly role models, and get some good Christian counseling. Then the third one is the authoritarian parent. This kind of parent doesn't express love and affection well, but is very high on discipline. They raise children who are provoked to rebellion. The bar is always high, and the musts are always abundant, so there is a strong sense of safety. 
But this kind of parent isn't content to win the war. They have to win every battle. Communication between the parent and child takes the form of arguing and fighting, especially when they're old enough to fight back. Authoritarian parents squeeze their kids until the kids can't wait to leave home, and as soon as they do, they rebel. When Paul told the Ephesians not to overcorrect their children and exasperate them, he warned authoritarians not to raise their children who would reject their faith altogether. And then finally, there is the authoritative parent. This kind of parent is authoritative, not overbearing, but a compassionate yet firm authority. They have clear boundaries, but are also very loving. Everyone knows who the boss is, but there is a connection between parents and child, a consideration that respects and honors the child, who the child is, while not compromising their disciplinary needs. The result is a child high in self-esteem and equipped with good coping skills. The parent who balances love and discipline without compromising either produces well-adjusted kids who maintain a positive relationship with mom and dad. And I just thought that was very insightful, very helpful, and I would encourage you, you can Google Focus on the Family, four types of parenting, and you can read some additional information on that uh, paradigm about those different kinds of parents and the good and the bad aspects of each one of those. But one man said this about being a parent. He says, don't worry that your children never listen to you. Worry that they're always watching you. Ouch, right? Don't worry that they never listen to you, but worry that they're always watching you. So King David says, I am going to gain my child's respect by demonstrating respect for other people. And I'm going to put godly people in my life and surround myself with godly people so that it is not foreign to my children. And then number seven, and I'm only going to give you eight of these, all right? And perhaps you can find more when you read Psalm 101, but these are just eight that... um, that I wanted to share with you. Number seven, I will remove the deceitful. Look what he says in verse seven. He that works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. Perhaps you've heard the story, it's an old story now, of a preacher by the name of Preacher James. He lived on a farm with his two boys and his wife. And one day a stray dog came to their, into their yard, and the boys over the course of a number of days fell in love with this dog, black dog with white spots. And they just fell in love with this dog. And then after a while, a guy on the neighboring farm, they had heard that his dog had ran away. And one day this man on the neighboring farm comes to this preacher's house looking for his dog. And his boys are like, Dad, We've heard that he's coming, and you can't let him take our dog, can you? And the dad takes black shoe polish, and he covers all of those white spots on his dog. And when the guy comes to look look for the dog, immediately that dog recognizes his master and runs up to him, and the man says, well, this kind of favors my dog, but my dog had white spots on it, and this dog is all black. And the man left, and it was said that day that Preacher James won the dog, but he lost his son's. He had two boys, and their names were Frank and Jesse James, the notorious bank robbers. And perhaps they saw something there in the life of their dad that led them down a path of destruction for their own lives. David says, I'm going to remove deceit from the land. Then let me give you number eight. He says, I will remain steadfast. Look what he says, verse eight. I will early destroy all of the wicked from the land that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. 
David wanted to lead the kingdom in such a way that there would be very minimal wicked influence, but that they would have positive godly influence. He wanted his court, the people that surrounded him, to know God. He wanted his family to know God. He wanted those in leadership positions in, in his kingdom to know God. Because we all lead from where we are, right? We all lead from where we are. And if we have a love for God in our heart, that's going to be communicated through our actions and our words and our deeds. So David's resolution is, I'm going to remain steadfast in this. I'm going to hold on to these principles, and I'm going to build a strong kingdom. And actually, actually, the kingdom was blessed under David remarkably. And we would apply that to our lives to say, we want to keep up with these same kind of resolutions because we want to build a Christian home and a Christian family. Perhaps you've heard of a man by the name of Derek Redmond. When I read this story, my mind immediately goes back because I remember, I remember seeing this as it actually took place. I'm dating myself, but Derek Redmond was a 400-meter 400 400 meter, uh, runner in the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Spain. Now, I remember watching that because I was, I was just a toddler, you know, when that, when that took place. Just a toddler, but I remember vividly uh, watching, that, watching that race. His dreams were to win a gold medal. His dreams were to represent his country and, and to win a gold medal in the 400-meter race. And uh, starter's pistol went off, and he took off, and I'm thinking it was around about the first turn or so. He pulled a hamstring. Maybe you remember this. He pulled a hamstring, and he went down to the ground, writhing in pain. And he watched as all of the runners passed him, heading to the finish line. He was not only in pain, but he was crushed emotionally because he so desperately wanted to represent his country in this race. And when the, when the, when the medical crew came out with a, with a stretcher, he said, I'm not going to get on the stretcher. And he got up, and he began to hobble. You remember this scene? The rest of the way around the track. And tears were coming down his eyes and coming down his face as he was in anguish trying to make it around the track. And after a while, this gentleman out of nowhere, past all the security guards, comes right up to him and puts his arm around him, and it just happens to be this young man's dad. And this young man's dad takes him arm in arm, and they hobble the rest of the way around the track. And as they come to the finish line, his dad kind of lets go, steps back, and lets his son cross the finish line on his own. And then his dad just kind of embraces him as he collapsed. 65,000 fans stand to their feet. They're cheering, millions of people watching it on television all around the world. And the one thing that David came, around, came away with that race with is, I finished the race. I finished the race. David's resolutions were to help him to build a godly kingdom and finish the race. As we put that into our lives today, there are resolutions for you and I to say, I want to build a Christian home that honors God. I want to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I want to teach my children and my grandchildren and influence everybody I, that I can for the things of God because one of these days, our race will be finished, and we want to finish strong. Amen, church? 
We want to finish strong and be able to say, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course and I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful psalm and the challenges it brings into our lives. God, we ask today that we don't leave it as print on a page, but that we take it from the page that we appropriate it into our lives and that these resolutions would become real to us and that we, like David, would put a value on what is most important, that we'd put a value on our walk with God and our public worship. Uh, Lord, that we would put a value on all of these resolutions and say, like Joshua, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. As we now have this time of invitation, God, we ask that you would just speak to our hearts. If there's one here under the sound of my voice that has never made their decision for you, what a wonderful day it would be to invite Christ into their lives. And I pray they would come as we have this time of invitation. There may be others praying about church membership who want to be part of this fellowship. I pray they would come, Lord. And others who just want to come and pray, take the invitation and use it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.